Now today we have with us a very special friend. She has been with us for a long time. She has a long history here at Woodland Hills and we love her dearly. So please give a warm Woodland Hills welcome to Sandra Unger. Thank you, Vanessa. How are my 11 o'clock friends? I was always an 11 o'clock person too. Nine o'clock, whatever. On a Sunday, all right. I'm going to wander around a little bit today. I'm just warning you. We're going to talk about the Jesus tribe, but we're going to kind of get there slowly. So I just need you to be patient with me. Is that okay? Can you hang with me? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this Jesus tribe here in this room. Thank you for your presence here. Thank you that you love us. We're grateful today for a new day. And now as we spend this time together learning about you and your world and your creation, I just pray that we would be tentative to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to start by telling a couple of stories. The first one is that about 10 years ago, I moved with my family to the east side of St. Paul. Most of you know that. And I went across my alley one day, not too long after I moved there, to meet my new neighbor, Dee. And I talked to her for a few minutes, and I came to the conclusion that Dee was African-American. Dee, Dee's over here somewhere. Raise your hand. Okay. So you can probably tell how astute my observation was. Um, I'm very quick, very quick on the draw. So you also might have noticed that Dee is a female like me. Dee has six kids. She's a mom like me. She has a couple of kids, the ages of my kids. She was in her 30s like me because there was a day. And we both lived on the east side of St. Paul. And most important, we both wear the same size shoe. So we had all of these things in common, but I walked away mostly thinking, Dee's black and I'm white. That was my observation. So this was almost 10 years ago. So fast forward to earlier this year, and Dee and I are in a training together, and um, it was taught by a tall, bald, white man. So I'd been living in this diverse context, Fast forward, I'm with DM in a training taught by a tall, bald white man. This tall, bald white man had met with our staff a couple of times at the lift, and we'd been through a couple of two-hour trainings. So over the course of a month or two, I had met with this person several times and been interacting with him. And one week, he said in our training class something that made me think he was African-American. And so I went over to D afterwards, and I'm like, is John African-American? And she gave me that look like, you poor thing. And she said, yeah. And I thought, wait a minute, I have missed out on everything. This whole thing, this whole time I've been confused, or maybe John's confused, maybe he's the one who's unclear. I thought he was black, I thought he was white, now I think he's black, I'm just unclear, is he in my tribe, is he not in my tribe? I have to rethink everything. Have you ever had that moment where you think, I've been so wrong? And then I thought, well, who cares, right? Doesn't matter if John's black or white. It just doesn't make any difference. But I thought, but it just feels weird because for a couple of months I thought one thing and now it turns out I was wrong. And you might be saying, who cares? You just made an honest mistake and you need to move on. And yes, it was just an honest mistake. And it's one that probably many of you can identify with. This tendency, we put people in boxes, we label, we sort, we classify, we have our tribes. And generally we all want to be around others from our tribe because we're more comfortable. So, like, for instance, have you ever got to know someone and really liked them and then found out they were a Packer fan? <laughs> ah! Or, like, something more substantive, like, oh, they're Catholic. Oh, you're an atheist. And there's almost this feeling like, now we have to start all over again. 
I've been deceived. So there's an article in Science Magazine that actually gives us a reason for this, and it's because we are actually by nature made to quickly recognize stereotype and avoid, actually avoid out-group members. This activity does not need to be taught. We aren't even aware that it's happening. Just subconsciously, we put people in boxes and we call them this or that. It's innate. It happens. And like so many messages, it goes right past our consciousness, right past the rational parts of our brain. We don't learn it. We just experience it. This is the world we live in. These are the bodies we inhabit. This is what we do. So I'll give you some examples. I've told this story before a few years ago, I think. But I was in Rainbow Foods on the east side one time, and I brought some friends with me, and they happened to be five African-American teenage boys, and we were shopping. And shortly after we started our shopping experience, they just started rapping about what I was putting in my cart. So I ended up pushing my cart, five boys in low-slung jeans and hoodies behind me, talking about Cheerios. I'm not going to rap because it would be bad. But anyway, they had the beat going, they had it all going, and they're saying, this is what she has in her cart. And we were very popular, I thought. I felt like we were making a statement and we were being really cool. So we get through the fro frozen foods and this white man runs up, runs up to me and says, are you okay? Do you need some help? And... I had been laughing so hard I was crying and now I just wanted to cry because here I was needing to be rescued from the people I came to the grocery store with. And this, this store manager was not a bad guy. He just didn't understand what was going on because they're the, in this tribe and you're in this tribe. You're in the happy white lady tribe and they're in the black teenager tribe and so you clearly couldn't possibly be here together and so I better rescue you from what's happening. Another example of how we do this. I went to a theology conference several years ago with a group of people from Bethel Seminary, and there were just a couple of women, and everybody else was a man. And I got there, and we would go into various workshops, and we would meet different people and connecting with people people knew, and everybody thought I was somebody's wife. So I, had, I, I kept being introduced, and then they'd look around like, okay, which one are you married to? None of them. I'm here because I'm a theologian. <laughs> I'm sorry I don't look like you thought I should. But it was clear that I invaded some kind of Christian boys club because theologians are supposed to look a certain way and I didn't fit the bill. So I must have been somebody's wife. Why else would I be there? Armani is a young lady I mentor. She's now 19. And for a couple of years, I've been mentoring her and so we would go into restaurants. And a few times, I'm not joking, we would walk in the door. So here we are walking in the door together at the restaurant. And the hostess would look at me and would say, table for one, something along those lines. And I would say, no, I think since we came together, we're just going to go ahead and sit together. But, you know, so I'm old, she's young, I'm white, she's black, so you guys are in different tribes, so I'm going to set you over here, I'm going to set you over here. And again, there's no malice intended, it's just that we don't look like we go together, we're in different tribes. Another example, a little bit in a different arena, is I have a friend who works... Um, in a high-level executive position, and she's a female, and she's surrounded in most meetings and in most of her teams with primarily men. And she frequently feels disenfranchised, like she doesn't have a voice. And even though it's hard to feel sorry for executives, maybe, you have to admit that spending 40 hours a week feeling like nobody's listening to you, like your voice isn't as important, like there's a boys' club in the corner that you haven't been invited to. It's the same kind of ism. It's this labeling of someone who's different from you and not being inclusive. We also have a rift between the stay-at-home moms and the working moms. So years ago, I was speaking at a women's brunch, and there were two sessions of it. So I spoke at the first one, and then the event planner came up to me and said, could you just not talk about your job? 
because we have a lot of stay-at-home moms here, and it kind of makes them feel bad about themselves. But literally. And I thought about what I said, and I thought, I, I said something about my job one time. I told one story about my job, and somehow that was going to threaten people. But I know I've lived this rift, that these people are bad or these people are bad based on the choices they've made. Those are two different tribes. What about Republicans and Democrats? <laughs> Those are some serious tribes. So I grew up in a context where all of the um, Democrats were going to basically burn. And then in my doctoral program, everyone in my cohort thought that all the Republicans were going to burn. And these, they were serious. Have you ever met someone who you thought you might be politically in line with and then you find out when election comes around that you're not? That's one of those, ah, how could I have liked you? Oh, wait, I'm a Christian. I love everybody. So there's some hard ones there. You see these differences and you're not sure what to do about them. But it is part of human nature to label. The similarity thesis says that the more we share in common with someone, the more likely we're going to build a relationship. And that's sort of obvious, but it's everything from race, appearance, economic class, intelligence, political affiliation, religion, and a whole long list of things that we like to share in common with someone because it's easier to build that relationship. They're not as much work if you share something in common. Even something like maybe some negative behaviors like smoking, like smoking weed, like drinking, like alcoholism even, like criminal behavior. If you're going to do those things, you kind of want to be around other people who want to do them. It's hard to smoke a joint in church. And so you tend to hang out with people who also like to do those things. Not that I've ever tried. <laughs> So you're looking for people who share this stuff. We like to think the same things. We like to do the same things. We like to go the same places. And when people are put in situations where they're, they have to interact with people who don't have things in common, it creates actually anxiety. Research has been done that you're actually anxious. So you can go into a whole room full of strangers, but if they look like you and they believe like you and they think like you, you can handle it pretty well. You go into a whole room full of strangers that don't share your looks and your beliefs, and, and there's a lot of anxiety. And most of us have felt that in our diverse world. So studies have also been done that show that if a group, such as a church, has a diverse membership, there's a high probability that this group will experience a greater level of interpersonal conflict. Like seeks like. I don't want to constantly have to be battling against your belief systems and your practices and all that. I just want to hang out with people who are like me. I'm going to form my tribe along lines of similarities because it's easier, it's less stressful, it's very efficient. Thank you very much. So I'm going to have the, let's say, the rich people tribe, the skinny people tribe, the Hmong tribe, the young and hip tribe, the white tribe, the middle-aged tribe, which I have joined without even wanting to, <laughs> the Christian tribe, the drinking tribe, the teetotaling lovers of Russian literature who love Big Macs tribe, whatever lines you want to draw, you can form a tribe. And the more people you can get in your tribe who think like you and act like you, the happier you're going to be, right? The best scientific proof of this is if you look at your speed dial on your cell phone, and you'll find people, mostly, who look like you, who think like you, who believe like you. And I'm not judging your speed dial list. This is just a reality. It feels very scientific because I've kind of checked it over and over, and that tends to be what happens. The people we want to talk to are the people who are like us. It's just easier. So in the case with John, our trainer, who I had this internal argument, still have an argument going on with myself, 
I had, it caused some stress because I'd put him in the same tribe, the same racial tribe as me, and now it turned out he was in another tribe. And then I would say, well, it doesn't make any difference, but it kind of does, but it doesn't, but it kind of does, but it doesn't. I don't know what to do with John. John, what are you? Are you sure that you're African-American? It was very overly upsetting to me. And I'm, I make light of it because it is ridiculous, but there really was this internal part that's, that had to review the previous two months and put it through a lens that said, we come from different backgrounds and different family systems. And in, in doing that, recognize it, of course, that it made absolutely no difference. But there's that feeling that says, I thought there was sameness and there's difference and it's disconcerting. So let's talk about what a tribe is. Obviously, we know biblically in the Old Testament that we have the 12 tribes of Israel, so Levi, Judah, Benjamin, and a lot of other long, big names. And then the Native American tribes, Chippewa, Ojibwe, Cherokee, Menominee, etc. So those are the legitimate historical, some of the legitimate historical tribes. On the humorous side of things, we have the PC versus Mac tribe. How do we feel about that? Because I feel like when I see someone with, the, with their Mac in a coffee shop, I feel that tribal thing going on. <laughs> Not to judge anybody else. Um, we have the Cub Rainbow tribe. We have, um, how about the Viking Packer tribe? Because actually there's a lot of rituals attached to that kind of tribe where you actually wear cheese on your head or a Viking helmet. That's just not normal. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> but what we're talking about primarily is tribalism. So we know at Woodland Hills that we fight against isms. So there's sexism, racism, a whole bunch of isms that we want to say we're not going to be a part of that because isms are about separating people into different groups. And actually, way back in the 4th century BCE, that's a long, long time ago, Aristotle said tribalism involves thinking you know what other people are like without knowing them. Lacking direct experience of others, you fall back on fearful fantasies. Thinking that you know someone, what someone is like without knowing them. Tribalism is what makes us say they, you know, the universal they, when referring to anyone who's unlike us. As though we can say anything about a people group that would apply to everyone in the group. We have a bias that sees members of our own tribe as individuals with unique personalities and perspectives and members of other groups as being all the same, thus the they. I feel like I spend a large amount of my, my time saying, there is no they. There is no they. Much of today's social tribalism is rooted not in real history like tribes, and most of it's not too funny like the whole PC Mac thing, but it's centered around really important issues of race, ethnicity, class, gender, disability, so this type of tribalism aligns with so many of the problems facing our society. With segregation, one tribe is saying to another, you know, our tribe just doesn't want to live by your tribe. With classism, one tribe is saying, the way we do things is the right way, and that's why we have all the resources. With racism, one tribe is saying, we hate your tribe, we're better than your tribe, we're going to use all of our power to make sure you have few chances to get a hold of the resources that our tribe has. We are going to intentionally strengthen the structural systems in our country that keep you down. Racism. Sexism says, we're the in-group, good luck getting in. Here's just one issue with one type of this tribalism, and that is the way we sort people into tribes, particularly racially and ethnically, is just based on a fat lot of nothing. 
Most biologists believe today that our thoughts about race are not rooted actually in good science. Differences in skin color do correlate with some measurable differences among people, but there's nothing special about that kind of difference. We have all kinds of differences. There's a lot of many biologically determined categories that have nothing to do with race, and yet we just ignore them and stick with race. There's no specific genes even that can be used to determine a person's race. It's not that these distinctions are totally baseless, it's just that there's a lot of other options. So why don't we sort people by hair color, or arm length, or height, or thickness of hair? These all have a genetic basis that's just as legitimate as what we use to sort. Have you ever thought of sorting people by the amount of fungiform papilla on their tongue? I thought not. This is in studies of taste. Scientists put a little bit of the chemical called prop on a piece of paper, and then they give it to the participants to lick. And 25% of the population are in the group called non-tasters, that is, they lick it and they taste nothing. 50% are in the medium tasters, that is, they lick it and they find it merely unpleasant. And 25% are called super tasters, and that they lick it and then they gag. And results, you need to write this part down, the results of this are linked to a bitter taste receptor gene called, ready, TASR, nope, TAS2R38. Ready? TAS2R38, that is the bitter taste receptor gene, and also linked to differences in fungiform papilla on their tongue. So I'm going with that one because it's easier to say than the R thing. Out of this research, they create three biologically distinct groups that have no connection to race, skin color, gender, nationality, at all. Biologically speaking, this distinction is just as real as ethnic groups. So the question isn't whether we differ. Of course, we differ in a million different ways. The question is, why do we hang our beliefs and our behavior on one type of difference over another? Why do we sort by skin color instead of, really, a list of hundreds of thousands of options. Why is D black, unlike me, instead of white? I mean, instead of a woman, like me. Why did I choose to sort by something that makes us different and divides us rather than something that draws us together? Why not think of D as a fellow woman and a fellow mother and a fellow neighbor? Why do I have to say, no, D is black and I'm white? That's what we do. That's sort of the automatic default where human beings go. So we know that. We put people into boxes and we avoid the out-group members. It comes naturally. But the same research that shows this also shows that we have another cognitive system that allows us to overwrite the stereotyping behavior. And when we do this, it leads to beneficial cooperative relationships. This is actually a potential in our brain that's often unrealized. So when we run into someone from another tribe, we have a couple of options. We can give in to the human tendency to label and avoid, or we can see the person as a potential ally. How willing are we to do this? So for example, we go to the PTA meeting, and we start talking to someone, we want to form a committee, and then we find out that this person we're talking to is an atheist, or whatever thing makes us kind of go, oh. So we have a choice. We can say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go on this committee over here, because I think they're Christians. We wouldn't say that, right? Or we can say, hey, here's, I can learn something. Here's a conversation I can have. I can be an ally. I don't have to be afraid of someone because they believe differently. They're okay. I'm a Jesus tribe member, so I can go anywhere fearlessly. I can interact. I can invite. I can welcome. But choosing to do that requires cognitive control. 
And it's easier to just do the former and run away because it doesn't really require anything except for us to act like sort of that innate tendency. Research shows that long-term experience with multicultural environment improves cognitive flexibility. It makes your brain work better. And who doesn't need a brain that works better? I need a brain that works better. We all need a brain that works better. Well, one way to do it is to put yourself in situations where you're dealing with diversity, differences of opinion, any kind of differences, really. And when you constantly have to inhibit your stereotyping mechanism, it makes your brain form new pathways. And it actually adds to your knowledge base. This is scientific. So I'm going to show a video now. Greg showed this video in December for another reason. So after the video, we'll talk about why we're looking at it today. But really, I believe that this church should just show this video every week because it's just the cutest thing. Take a look. Okay, sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you another one, because then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? All right. I'm gonna go do something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. to it where you're just, I'm not going to look at it. It's so painful. So Greg used this in a sermon called Marshmallow Advent, if you can believe that. 
to talk about how important it is for our spiritual growth that we learn to delay gratification. And this is the um, Stanford Marshmallow Experiment that they started 30 or 40 years ago. And the research they've done shows that when they follow these kids as they grow up, the ones that were able to delay gratification have better test scores, do better in school, in life, in relationships, just generally function better. So this is kind of an important thing to start to learn when you're a kid. If you didn't learn it then, then let's learn it now. Because the same part of the brain that you use to delay gratification is the part of the brain that you can train and develop to overrule stereotyping. And it is kind of the same thing. So you say, I will not eat this marshmallow. And then you also say, and I will not stereotype people as soon as I meet them and put them in boxes and label them as the out group. See, it's the same thing. <laughs> While we may prefer sameness and stability and keeping life easy, we do possess this ability to override fear of the other and cooperate rather than compete. And the more you overrule those stereotypes, the more you train your brain. And I'm thinking that since we are called as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to be reconcilers, the Jesus tribe should be first in line to train our brains this way, right? Yes. I really think we should. And here's where we leave science behind and run headlong into biblical truth. So from Revelation 7, After this I looked, and there in front of me was a huge crowd of people. They stood in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, there were so many that no one could count them. They came from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They were wearing white robes. In their hands, they were holding palm branches. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. Salvation also belongs to the Lamb. Every nation, tribe, people, and language. Every tribe. So this is a picture of what will happen in heaven in the future when the kingdom of God is fully realized. A great crowd of diverse people all worshiping together. And the message of Jesus is literally that he came to make a new tribe of all different kinds of people from all different kinds of tribes. In Colossians 3.28, we find that in the kingdom of God there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All are one in Christ Jesus. And these three distinctions, Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, were three of the biggest social distinctions in the first century when this is written. And in the kingdom of God, these divides are done away with. This was radical, radical, radical in the first century. Not Jew or Greek, not slave or free, not male or female. All are one in Christ Jesus. It was radical then, it's radical today. There's no distinctions in the kingdom of God. The Jesus tribe is flat. Everybody is welcome. We've taken on a new identity around the person of Jesus. In this tribe, we may not have the same color of skin or speak the same language or have the same kind of church service, same amount of money, but what we do have in common is Jesus, who trumps all differences. The Jesus tribe, gathered around the person and work and love of Christ. His tribe overcomes the innate human tendency to seek out sameness. His tribe seeks to be loving, to welcome the other, to not live in fear. This tribe serves as the hands and feet of Jesus who desperately need the hands and feet of Jesus. This tribe welcomes anyone who wants to join in the tribe regardless of anything else about them. So I'm Scandinavian, I'm female, I'm middle class, I shop at Cub Foods, and yes, I have a Mac, but first and foremost, I'm a member of the Jesus tribe. So the question is, why can't we just hang out today in our segregated, stratified, racist, sexist world and wait for this day to come? We can see from Revelation that it's all going to come out okay in the end, 
And so why don't we just get our binoculars and sit on the roof and wait for Jesus to return and fix this mess we've made? That seems like a plan, so let's all go home. No. There's a small matter of an important prayer that Jesus prayed. It's called the Lord's Prayer. You may have heard of it. So there's a line in it that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we read in Revelation that in the kingdom of God to come, all of the tribes worship together. There's no, no distinctions. We're worshiping the Lamb. And now we read that we're to be bringing that kingdom now, like now, on earth as it is in heaven. So what we're doing here is we wait for Jesus as we're building his tribe on earth as it is in heaven, and we pray for it and we work for it. So how do we work for it? Well, take a step back from the normal, if there is such a thing, the normal way things are done. So this world that we live in, can we pull ourselves out of it enough to not just buy into the way things are, to be objective, to think about what's going on around us? Because the Jesus tribe are game changers. And in order to change the game, you kind of have to know what the game is, right? So we got to step back, we got to pay attention to the game that's being played. And we do have this ability. Jesus has given us a different lens. He's giving us brains that we can develop that are able to look at things differently. We can override labels and stereotypes, and we can welcome the other. So I'm going to show you another movie clip uh, as we ponder how to make progress on the task before us. And I just have to warn you, this movie is a minute long, and it's so fascinating, it'll seem like it's 10 minutes long. Take a look. Don't say I didn't warn you. Okay, wake up, people. Wake up after that exciting movie. So this movie was made by scientists Heidel and Simmel in the 1940s to study human behavior. So they would sit people in a room, they would watch this film, and then the people would give their responses. And people said things like, that big triangle is a bully. The circle was terrified. The small triangle and the circle are in love. The large triangle is very angry and destructive. And my favorite one, this story made me cry. I don't know what that person was watching. So... People make up a storyline to go along with what they're seeing, and they assign personalities to the actors. So kind of what Disney does with warthogs and penguins and, and such. We make them people. We make them like us. Research shows that we are also hardwired to do these things. So did anyone here make up a nice little story to go along with what was going on on the screen? Okay. We're not even aware a lot of times that we're doing this. We just think it's so cool watching this, oh, the triangle's mean, those two are in love, or whatever, and we're not, we're not even paying attention to the fact that that's actually not what's happening on the screen. And metacognition is a principle, a concept that says to, that we need to have knowledge about our own thoughts, and we need to learn to regulate our own thoughts. So what it would say is, if you make up a love story involving triangles and circles, at least be aware that you're doing it, and that you've gone beyond what's actually happening on the screen. Because what we actually saw on the screen was not that interesting. It was a simple rectangular box. We saw three shapes moving in and out of the box. We saw that the small triangle and circle tended to stay closer together. And we saw that at the end, the large triangle breaks a couple of lines in the rectangle box. And I admit that this is not nearly as exciting as the love story that some of you came up with. But that's what was actually happening. And there's nothing wrong with your love story. Creativity is great. But metacognition, in this case, helps us to step back and notice what we're thinking and maybe ask ourselves why. Biblically, this principle comes up, although I'm pretty sure the word metacognition is not in the Bible. But we do find in Romans to, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In Ephesians, we're renewing the spirit of our mind. 
And I see this as a really, really, really essential spiritual discipline. Because it's hard to have your mind renewed if you don't have any idea what's going on up there. So we all walk through the day and we're walking down the street and we're saying, you shouldn't be eating that, and how are you so short, and I wonder what happened to your this or that. I mean, we're, we're literally just walked down as we meet people, we're labeling, you're old, you look like my sister. They don't have to be negative labels, but this constant dialogue going on in our head that places people in categories. And some of them are negative and some of them are positive, but we're just often completely unaware of it. So metacognition says, be aware of it. The renewal of our mind requires that we know what's going on up there. Of course, it's the work of the Spirit to renew our minds, but we have to invite the Spirit in. So this is a process. We don't just get zapped and renewed at the same time. So to our topic at hand, metacognition helps us recognize the stereotypes or labels that we so easily assign as we go through our days, and delayed gratification helps us think about creating opportunities and connections rather than stereotyping and running from difference. I think our brains are so cool that we can do these things. I think it's cool that we can do these things even when we're old, that there's still possibilities for change. We can still rewire our brains. The spirit can renew us even if we're over 40. Still, even if we're over 80, it can still happen. There's still hope. So I love it that the calling in scripture aligns so well with the brains that God gave us. So there's four pieces to this, really, and I'll review. Revelation tells us that in the end, when God's kingdom is fully realized, all the tribes worship together in unity. Matthew tells us that we're to be bringing God's kingdom here on earth today, as it will be in heaven. Metacognition helps us recognize stereotypes that we assign so readily, the tribalism that gets in the way. And delayed gratification helps us think beyond tribal stereotypes, take a second, welcome the other. But we have to put it into practice, which is difficult. I have a few ideas of how we can go about this. Let's see if any of these will work for you. So think of someone at work or school who you may have labeled a while back and see if you can step back from that initial assessment, especially if it's a negative assessment. Is there room somewhere in all you know about that person to find a different way to describe them? Were you even aware that you'd put them in a box? How about visiting a church that's very different from your own? Because no matter how different it is, we have to recognize that these are also members of the Jesus tribe. And in the end, we will be worshiping together. And you may be the quiet stayed worshiper, and they may be dancing around, but there's no reason for disunity there. It's recognizing that this is the diversity in the kingdom of God. So visit a different church. Third thing, exercise your metacognition by mentally reviewing how you classify a person you meet this week. So you go in for the handshake. What am I thinking? Pay attention to the first thing that comes to mind. And it may be, it's hard to not notice if someone's speaking a different language or if someone has a different skin color. It's not that we don't want to notice those. It's number one, notice that we're noticing those. And second, notice what we do with that information. So when I meet Dee, do I say, oh, she's a black person and we're not ever really going to be friends? Or can I say, Dee's a black person, what a great opportunity to learn a different perspective and I'm so excited that she lives across the alley from me being aware of what's going on, being aware of those things that you assign on first sight. Fourth thing, studies have shown that eating with someone makes us more receptive to what he or she has to say. And who doesn't like to eat? And so eating with someone can also make them more receptive to what we have to say. So try eating with someone who's not of your tribe. Could you eat lunch with an atheist? Could you? 
You can do it. So find someone who shares a totally different tribal perspective and just get to know them as people and try to jettison the labels and the fear. Because the Jesus tribe is fearless. We move into the world through the power of Christ and we can be comfortable around people who are different from us, who believe different from us, who have even have different political views, if you can believe that, who've made different choices. Our tribe is not threatened because our tribe does not rely on our own power. Our tribe runs on the power of Christ. Our tribe runs on love. And this isn't just a cute little kind of love where we say, oh, I'm going to try to love all the different people around me. This is just the foundation of love. God is love. And as the Jesus tribe, we have access to that. And we move out into the world with that love. And who wouldn't want to be a member of a tribe that loving? We don't need to go out and pass out tracts so much as we just need to go out and be open and fearless and love fearlessly. That's what the world sees. This is the Jesus tribe. Amen. Our tribe runs on love. So let's be the Jesus tribe in all of the good things that mean and not all of the stereotypes that have been assigned to Christians. Let's be the loving, fearless Jesus tribe. And let's say the Lord's Prayer together. So let's stand up. And let's think about what we're saying and let's commit to it. From Matthew 6. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Father, I lift up this Jesus tribe to you. Bless them, give them your power, give them your fearlessness, the fearless love that is so transforming. Thank you for that. Empower us with that. Remind us with that. Help us to go out into this world with an openness that can only come from you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks.